Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Pink and purple polka dotted perforated ping pong balls. Okay, I think that's pretty good. Or maybe it's too loud. I don't know. I can't tell. Hey everyone, it's Daisha. There's a chance that you may already be a fan of pianist Tiffany Poon, who is the guest in this episode today. Like, like a pretty good chance because she has a huge online presence and following. It's interesting. I, I went into this conversation with Tiffany thinking, cool, this will be a conversation with a young person about how she and other young classical musicians are using social media in their careers, like this really old art form meeting the modern world, you know, that kind of thing. And it's a little bit about that, but it turned out to be about a whole lot more because Tiffany Poon is a really deeply philosophical thinker, as in she has a degree in the subject from Columbia. She's thought a lot about her relationship to her audience as a classical musician and why it is that classical music isn't more centered around personalities like other genres of music are. She's interested in in how to break down people's barriers to classical music by showing them the work that goes into really high-level performances like hers. First, she's going to teach me about Rachmaninoff III, not Rachmaninoff, as I say throughout this episode. You're welcome. Um, And then we're going to talk about uh, her series of really popular vlogs, including her practice vlogs, which are on YouTube. Anyway, you'll have to listen to the episode to find out more. Uh, And hey, speaking of listening, if you are listening to this episode, why not go ahead and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it? While you're at it, give us a little review. Okay, go ahead. We'll wait. Okay, good job. And now on with the episode. There's a rumor going around that classical music can be hoity-toity. But here in the classical classroom, we beg to differ. Beethoven 5. <laughs> the idea that classical music is a zone where we have to feel restricted or we have to act in a certain way, you know, that's not going to be helpful going forward. <laughs> Isaiah is shaking with excitement oh, here. I mean, there's just so many great parts of the opera. He asked me to play his favorite spot in the first moon of the Brahms. And then he said, I started using those licks in my guitar solos. How to be classical music rock stars because there's not enough of that in this business. Occasionally I would plug in the mandolin to my distortion pedals. <laughs> I don't change my voice. And talking to classical I, music. <laughs> I'm playing classical music now. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the same 12 notes. That's what's so cool about it. I'm Daisha Clay, a classical music newbie, and I'm trying to learn all I can about the music. Come learn with me and the classical music experts I invite into the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today from Yale University is Tiffany Poon. She is a rising star in classical music. She's a pianist, and she was recently featured on Performance Today with Fred Child. Hey, Fred, what's up? Uh, She also has 11 million-plus views and 110,000 followers on YouTube. She has 120-plus social media followers. This is part of what we're going to talk about today. And she is, uh, speaking of Yale, she's actually pursuing a Master of Music degree at Yale right now. Today, she's first going to teach me about Rachmaninoff's third concerto, and then we're going to get into learning about it in front of a huge global audience on social media. Tiffany Poon, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Hello, thanks for having me. So I'm hoping before we get started that you can tell me just a little bit about who Rachmaninoff was, just like when did he live, why do we remember him as a composer? Well, Rachmaninoff is 
a very well-known romantic composer of Russia. And mm. why do we remember his music? Well, there are a lot of, lot of reasons. For me personally, I think his music is so simple in the way that it can speak to our emotions and mm. our thoughts. And just the melodies are so memorable. Like the emotions that he's conveying are sort of pure in a way. Yeah, and they're also difficult to play. Uh, so that is the interesting Right, I was going to say, you were saying it was simple, but I was like, wait a minute, I've seen you play some of this. <laughs> and I'm like, that is not simple music. <laughs> I think it's simple in what it tries to convey, but the execution is not necessarily simple. I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to talk about why the third concerto was something that you as a musician wanted to, to take on. What compelled you to, to tackle it? I think even just the opening D minor theme is just so nostalgic and it relates to some part of my personality and some parts of my life before. And I actually honestly did not know that it would be this difficult or that it's known as one of the most challenging concertos for piano. Mm. I just kind of started learning it and I really did not think that it was some challenging piece that I needed to tackle or anything like that. Mm. So I don't know, I just kind of fell into it. I mean, why wouldn't you play it so beautiful? Yeah, so you just dug it and thought it sounded cool and you wanted to wanted to make it yeah, part of Yeah, I I think yeah. it sounds beautiful. I don't know if it's cool necessarily, <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely just so heart-wrenching at some points and I see. I'm also yeah. a hopeless romantic for these kinds of yearning melodies, so <laughs> Well, I'd love to hear some of this romantic music, so um, let's take a listen. I've got a recording here. I think this is Ashkenazi with the London Phil playing. Uh, let's, let's listen to the first movement, and maybe you can tell me what's going on. You hear the strings start out with a soft carpet, I guess, of D minor. And then the piano comes in in unison, which is so rare. I don't think you can think of any other concerto that starts out like that, with both hands playing the same melody, just one octave apart from each other. Hmm. And that's what I mean by how it can speak to you so simply, but also you just have to get that sound right, because yeah. that's the opening statement. Okay, okay. Is, is that a statement that comes back later in the piece? Oh, uh, well, it comes back in the recap, obviously, because it is uh, traditional, somewhat of a concerto. There is um, opening, and then there's the development, and there's the recap. But that melody is so memorable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you have some passages for um, the piano and it develops more and more and the piano and the orchestra kind of intertwine a bit more but I think my favorite part is when the or one of my favorite parts of the concerto is definitely the second theme when it comes in B flat major I actually spent quite a while trying to figure out how to play it well with the rubato and just the kind of phrasing that I wanted and colors 
and it's just again so simple but also so hard at the same time to play it well to have it speak like a human voice or sing like a human voice. Remind me of what rubato means. Rubato means how to be flexible in time, I think. Mm. I don't know if that's the official definition, but for <laughs> me, rubato is kind of how you play with the rules in a way. Yeah, okay. In time and sometimes in sound also, but rubato usually has to do with time. second theme. Oh, and then it develops into kind of this crazy climax because you've got the piano trying to compete a little bit with the orchestra with those gigantic octaves and those chords. But it's also so amazingly done the way that Rachmaninoff can have both the orchestra and piano intertwine and combine together in this uniform sound. Then sometime later, the cadenza comes, and it's again one of those really well-known cadenzas because of its difficulty. I'm trying to dig back deep into my brain the definition of a cadenza. Isn't that the part of the music where the the musician is kind of given some free reign over what you can play? Like there there's a loose structure and you follow it, or do I have that completely wrong? No, you have it completely right. Yes, and in the <laughs> classical, in the classical era, with concertos like Mozart's or perhaps even Haydn, the cadenzas were not always composed. So, not all the concertos have Mozart's cadenzas, for example. But mm -hmm. then, towards other uh, later composers, even with Beethoven, people start playing his own cadenza. And then with Rachmaninoff, he wrote his own cadenza. And uh, I've actually never heard anyone play their own cadenza for Rachmaninoff III. I could be wrong, though. Yeah. But I think the tradition of having a free improvisatory uh, section for the soloist kind of changes as time goes by from around classical era up to oh. romantic. Okay, okay. But I'm glad to know that I had at least like kind of the idea <laughs> but it's interesting okay. i had to think about that for a second yeah. but yes you, you're yeah. completely right i think it's very nice that it starts out in a scale mm. just one single line and then it develops more and more and then there's a kind of scherzando like parts that harks back to previous melodic material of the concerto Thank you. 
and then it develops more and more, get heavier and heavier sounds, and then the jumps with the octaves come back and all the chords, and that's the harder part of it, and then it explodes. <laughs> does it feel? Well, we're only talking about up to first movement so far. <laughs> By oh, the man. time I'm at the I'm... end of the third movement, <laughs> I uh, am quite <laughs> physically drained and emotionally also because uh, the third movement is perhaps a bit harder because it has a lot more notes and it's uh -huh. a lot of busy, 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 note, uh, just busy note passages in the third movement. And there's... A part in the last movement, um, I mean, I love the second movement also, and it's so lyrical and it's also incredibly hard to have the rubato right and have it really speak to your soul in a way. Um, mm -hmm. But if we're going to talk about difficulty in the technical sense, the third movement, when there is, it's also very fun. There's a part where essentially it's a gallop, and I, as the soloist, ride with the orchestra, and it's a lot of fun when the orchestra can ride with you and be together and gallop all the way to the end. Well, maybe not all the way to the end, but just the kind of energy is really, really amazing to play with the orchestra and go to the climax and then finish in sweat. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just lay down on the floor. Well, I'm done. I, mean, I don't think you're allowed to do that I think practicing the passages sometimes, <laughs> I feel like lying down on the floor at the end <laughs> of drilling <laughs> over and over again something. But no, not on stage or anything like that. It's just, when you complete playing a piece like that, like how, what is it that you, as just a, as a person, like what are you feeling? What do you get out of that? Well, I think in a performance, I hope that by the end, I've spoken to the audience in some way through the composer's music. And, uh, of course, there's always that self-evaluation part of me asking or saying whether I was satisfied or not. But I think the point is to tell a story with the music mm -hmm. and hoping that the audience feel something and or thought of something just mm -hmm. through the music and through the experience of the performance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you're wanting to, to essentially communicate something to, and connect with the audience. Yeah, I mean, that music. is, okay. I hesitate to say that music has a certain purpose necessarily. And mm -hmm. That's just <laughs> uh, right, philosophically right. problematic. But I think music is a language, as cliche as it sounds, and I think it should be a form of communication, yeah. especially in performance. Listeners, 
This is the segment we call Business Time. It's the spot where I remind you that even though it seems that way, this podcast did not emerge fully formed and walking like I did as a baby. Nor did it come from a unicorn's tear. No, though it sounds like it, this podcast did not fall from heaven wrapped in a sparkly box. People, like yours truly, had to make this. And though I do survive mostly on pixie dust and the breath of kittens, I occasionally have to eat. So, if you'd like for this thing to keep going, consider giving us a gift. You can give a one-time or recurring donation on our website, classicalclassroomshow.com. Just look for the tip jar button in the upper right-hand corner. And oh hey, while you're there, look at that website. Isn't it a looker? If you want a website like this, you should go check out New Why. They can make a website for you and help promote your business. Go to classicalclassroomshow.com slash NW. That's N as in new and W as in Y. And now back to my conversation with Tiffany Poon. So I want to talk, um, speaking of conveying something to an audience, we've got to get into this really uh, unique thing that you're doing, which is that you're not just a student of classical music. You're not just a, a, a performing musician. You're sharing this experience with a huge social media audience, an online audience. Mm -hmm. Hi guys, now I'm back and you're gonna have to travel back in time with me a little bit, about two and a half, three weeks, because I felt How did that a start? Lot of things. Well, before I, I started vlogging, I mostly posted videos of my own playing on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And I was also majoring in philosophy when I was at Columbia for college. Mm -hmm. And I took an aesthetics class in philosophy of art and music where a lot of people were saying how technology changes art and how we experience art because it can dehumanize and just completely get rid of the human because of technology and the strive for perfection. And it got me thinking, I think vlogging was also kind of a trend at the time, so I knew of it and I watched um, some YouTube vlogs before nothing related to music. And I was thinking, hmm, how come for classical music, no one really understands or gets to see the behind the scenes process and the human aspect of it? Because if you compare classical music with pop culture, for example, or pop music, you know so much more about the artist and just the maybe intruding in a way for them, just mm -hmm. the more life aspects. And you don't really see the same with classical musicians. You don't really know um, what goes on behind doors or behind the curtains. Yeah. And I thought it would be interesting to, and also important to kind of bring classical music back into the present day because classical music is dead, old, all of those negative connotations <laughs> that comes with <laughs> this genre of music for old people. And I think it's really interesting to, and important to bring that human aspect back as a way of, so-called giving life back to classical music. I think that's so interesting, especially the first thing that you just said. You're talking about how with other forms of like popular music, people kind of know who the the person that they're listening to is, especially right. in classical music. People know certain musicians, but mostly they know composers who are dead. <laughs> and, right. and, and then in, in like the popular music world, it's all about personality. Yes. It's not that that doesn't exist in the classical music world. It's just that it's more rare, I think. And mm -hmm. like the focus is different. 
Well, practically speaking, it makes sense for audiences of pop music to know more about the artist and the musician because the composer is also the artist and the singer. Right. Whereas sometimes, with classical music, sometimes. we're we're technically the vessel of dead people's thoughts and music. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah. it's also kind of hard to think of classical music as accessible. I think yeah. that's a big problem of why it's hard to get newer audiences and younger audiences into the concert halls. Because there is a kind of disconnect between the audience and the performer, which has to do with the nature of classical music being from such a long time ago. But I think、right. there is a way for the musician to be a vessel to both respect the composer, but also show some sort of human life. Yeah, and I think that is. Do you think maybe that that's the the issue right there? Is well, is, I don't think I can. Definitively say that it's the one issue or anything like that. I think it does help to show more of an accessible side to classical music,、mm -hmm. and that's why I started vlogging. Although it did take me quite a while to figure out what kind of vlogging I wanted to do,、yeah. and yeah, and then I landed on practice vlogs.、Uh, something that that's very interesting looking back is that in the beginning I remember. I had people asking me to film my practicing, and I just felt so uncomfortable because it's like bringing a camera to the dressing、yeah. room to me.、Um, but、yeah. then I found maybe there's a way for me to show it without it being intruding on my own privacy,、mm -hmm. and I think I figured it out to a certain extent. Although I well, do、yeah. still keep <laughs> running out of ideas of how to vlog all the time.、Well Well, the 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 ones that I've watched the 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 practice that I've watched and the reason that we were talking about Rachmaninoff three is is、um, the I've watched videos of you learning this very difficult piece、uh, in YouTube videos and I mean to me like I'm I'm watching it and I'm going clearly this person is a very skilled pianist but she's allowing us to see her mess up a little bit. When I'm watching these, I'm less thinking, okay, this is a person who's brand new and is is learning this piece. It's more this person is a very good pianist who is trying to perfect something, which well, is, I think, a little bit different. I'm glad. To be fair, though, I wasn't learning from scratch. Yeah, yeah, I figured. <laughs> yeah, I actually started that piece a couple years ago, and I dropped it for a couple of years, and、mm -hmm. I was picking it back up for a performance in Mexico. So that、yeah. was about two weeks before my performance. Okay,、um, so that was just those practice videos were just filmed two weeks before you were going to perform this in front of a live audience. Right. Wow. Okay, so talk to me about your approach. Where, where actually, when we see your videos, are you, are we seeing you in your process of practicing and rehearsing? And how do you approach making those videos? That video took me. So long to edit, and that's my main qualms about making practice videos: is that they do take a long time for me to edit, because that 
I forgot how long that video is, maybe 11 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. That was probably cut down from maybe an hour, no, probably 45 minutes at least of footage. Yeah. And for me to sit there and go through and try to extract what is coherent enough mm-hmm. for a YouTube audience because sometimes <laughs> I don't I don't practice the same passage over and over again for a really long time so then there are some random parts that I just need to cut off for coherence sake but Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting is that people get to see what I try to perfect and what my expectations are Uh at least to a certain degree in the technical sense it's easier to explain oh I missed a note there or this note is not strong enough or my finger was not strong enough there and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but I really did not expect the kind of response I got from that video, I did not expect to hit 100,000 subscribers like in a week and a half after I posted that video. And now it's got half a million views, which is wow. quite astounding. You've tapped into something clearly. So what is it that you think that is? I mean, people say it's a brave thing to do, mm-hmm. and I don't personally think that it's some brave thing. I mean, everyone goes through it. It's just, I don't understand. Particularly, I had that mindset also. I think it just has to do with the classical music bubble where everyone has to be a certain way and you have to act and play in a certain perfect manner, perhaps. But mm-hmm. I think it's just part of being human, too. And it's not the point to glamorize mistakes at all. I mean, I hope that's not what it's been doing. I think it's more just showing a kind of motivation for others to keep striving, kind of like my tagline that I say at the end of my uh, vlogs, is to just keep trying and not give up. And I think most of the comments have been something to this nature of, oh, I watched this and now I want to practice and I want to keep striving and keep working hard. Yeah, like there's there's something in there. There's this sense, I think, in the classical music world that that, you know, people people come to it when they're so young, you know, like three years old. Many people. When how old were you when you came to classical music when you first started playing? Well, I have two different answers for your questions because <laughs> I came to classical music before I was even born. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> because okay. yeah. uh, music was just part of my household. It was always played yeah. through records. Not uh, My parents are not musicians. And I started playing because my parents played classical music and or opera. Actually, there's this one video of me playing the toy piano trying to imitate the sounds of the opera of of Carmen and uh, I think I had perfect pitch back then because I remember thinking to myself oh my 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 piano does not match the sounds of the recording Um, and then eventually they're like maybe you should play a piano that doesn't only have four keys and the rest is history I think I was about five or four or five and I started taking actual lessons so, so I think there's this sense, like, that it's a very different world in classical music. You know, like, you, people tend to come to it so early. You're so steeped in it. And, and, and often the, the people, at least that we know of, who are, are, like, big names in classical music who are really successful have been, have been playing for so long that it's just absolutely part of 
their entire person. And when we see them in concert, which is usually the only chance that we get to see them, uh, we, we see them spring like fully formed from the head of Athena, you know? Right. And you are in these videos essentially saying, nope, that's not actually how it happens. What, how it happens is through really hard work and doing it over and over again. And here it is. Yeah. I mean, I think to do anything well, you really need to put in the effort. Yeah. And that's just kind of the reality of what goes on, I guess, for any classical musician or any musician to perfect or try to come to some form of perfection in their mind yeah. and play the best that they can. And I don't see what I do anything special except just showing kind of the reality of what goes on behind doors and behind curtains. Right, you're showing the work that goes into it. With a lot of other different forms of medium or media, you get to see that behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, just not really with classical music. Yeah. Also, I want to talk a little bit about the community that you've engendered um, mm -hmm. from doing this. So d talk about who your fans are. I mean, my fans are really amazing, and I still am amazed how I can have such a large community just through my thumbs on yeah. my phone <laughs> and through <laughs> like a couple buttons on my computer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get messages that I just got one, I think an hour ago, someone told me that they started to play the piano again because of a video they saw of me. Wow. <laughs> wow. And that's just so amazing. And it's a bit perplexing for me to, maybe perplexing is not the right word, but I just can't really understand how that is possible and it's amazing and I'm very grateful for the support that I have but at the mm -hmm. same time like how did I influence your life choices that seems to be quite an amount of power <laughs> yeah I th well you know I think that that social media one of the one of the things that it does kind of in a, in a bad way is is that it it makes everybody feel like they're little islands you know and like that everybody else's life is doing great uh, and, yeah. and that we're all we're all weirdly isolated even even on this platform where people are allegedly connected and right but and I think if you look at other fields let's say fashion yeah. there is a whole new movement of trying to show no makeup selfies or a kind of raw side of just being human and mm -hmm. being natural and I think what I do with practice videos is kind of on the same same horizon, I guess, yeah. to just not so much be obsessed with perfection necessarily, not to, again, not to glamorize the mistakes or anything like that, but also to embrace the whole entire human process of making something profound and hopefully meaningful. Yeah, and I, 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 I think that the, what you're talking about, it essentially is um, tapping into this thing that that all of us humans really need, which is connection. And it's really yeah. hard to connect with somebody who's perfect. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to connect with somebody who is, you know, fallible and who has to who has to work because, we, like, we literally all have to work. No one is. It's this, yeah, um, it's this falsehood to think that anybody ever uh, is, is just perfect and super gifted and that's how they mm -hmm. are. It all takes work and there's something yeah, 
that people can connect to in your willingness to show that you have to work at this very difficult cadenza or whatever, you know, like there's something there for people to latch onto. I mean, I think perfectionists, there are two sides to perfection. There's the one that makes you feel kind of anxious and disappointed in yourself yeah. because you can't live up to that expectation. But there's also the more positive side, which I hope, at least for my life, I, I look at something that to me sounds perfect or seems perfect. And mm -hmm. I use that as a goal to work towards and strive towards. So yeah. there's that also positive yeah. aspect. And But uh, talking about the connection also, it's when I started performing this year, especially seeing my fans in person is also just a whole different level of connection that I am hmm. so grateful for. Because it's one thing to see their usernames and to remember their uh, profile pictures or something like that, but to actually talk to them, uh, that's the connection that I really want ultimately it's not so much just behind the screen uh -huh. of social media but really actually socialize in person and really yeah. have that connection through music and through meet and greets and yeah well I, I think that's incredible that it it translates to a world off screen I, I am thinking though just about how much work it is to do both the the, the training, the rehearsal, the practice that you're doing to have a life as a professional musician, to be a you know master's student at, at Yale, and then to keep up this whole social media world too. Can you talk about some of the challenges that that poses? When you start <laughs> saying um, asking about the challenges, my first thought was I filmed a vlog recently where there was a part that I was talking to the camera after editing for a couple hours and my eyes look so incredibly tired. Oh. And so there are moments when my fans literally can see how I maybe not struggle, but you know, show physical signs of me <laughs> trying to do everything. And there's that downside of having dark circles and eye backs and cam on camera, but um, <laughs> there's that embarrassing part, but also, hey, I'm also a human. <laughs> hey, you can, you can like combine the, the practice videos and the no makeup. Oh gosh, selfies. no, uh, <laughs> I'm not that self-confident. <laughs> That's a whole new level. Yeah, no, um, I just, kind of think that now social media is such a part of my life even though there are moments when I just want to focus on doing music and practicing and really doing well in my performances so um, it's funny to have this interview now because a couple of days ago I actually you know for the past two weeks I haven't been very consistent on social media because I wanted to focus all of my energy on just being present in real life and practicing well for my recital coming up this Sunday in Germany. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, sometimes you really have to find a balance that works for you. And sometimes for me, it means taking time off of social media. But also, I know that I should feel responsible to keep posting because mm -hmm. I really, really appreciate and want to keep up with the community that I've built and try to inspire more and more people to appreciate classical music. So that's why I keep going. So it's kind of 
having different motivations. One, I want to play well in concerts, and two, I want to inspire more to appreciate classical music. Well, Tiffany Poon, I so appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy life uh, <laughs> to talk with us on Classical Classroom today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Daisha. All right, everyone, that's it for this episode. But never fear, you can always listen to all of our past episodes at classicalclassroomshow.com. And while you're there, connect with us on social media, where we sometimes post things with zero regularity. Email us at classicalclassroomshow at gmail.com. Thanks today to the home of Classical Classroom, King FM, where we are laying out in the yard drinking frozen beverages and frightening people with our pastiness. Thanks to the birthplace of Classical Classroom, Houston Public Media. Thanks to the official chewing gum provider of Classical Classroom, Mike's Convenience Store, where that gum you like is coming back in style. Thanks to Tiffany Poon for being on the show. Thanks to me for saying words. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.